I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Today, we have two very big brains and an enormous topic in the form of Mohamed El Arian and Mike Spence. Mohamed is a renowned economist, doesn't need much introduction, I think, a thought leader in the world of global finance and economics with a career that spans not just academia, but also investment management and public policy. Mike, also a distinguished economist and a Nobel laureate to boot for his groundbreaking work on information asymmetry and its implications for markets and public policy, and also with a very broad career spanning academia, public service and advisory roles. They came together with uh, Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister of the UK, to produce a book that we're going to discuss today, which has just been published called Permacrisis, A Plan to Fix a Fractured Financial World. They're here today basically to take us through their blueprint or their idea to move from a state of protracted uncertainty and depressed growth to unlock inclusive, sustainable growth. It's a book about economics and society, but I think our listeners will see the direct connections to the business topics of foresight, resilience, technology, innovation, social responsibility, sustainability, change, innovation, and more. So thanks for joining me, Mike and Mohammed, and uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you, Martin. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Martin. So let's kick off with the challenge. I'm not sure whether you coined the word, but you used a word which is unfamiliar to me, the permacrisis. And giving it a, a name and uh, describing it as a problem, you seem to indicate that you don't see this as just a series of unfortunate coincidences or a passing state of affairs, but a, but a new substantively different state of affairs. So tell us, tell us what you mean by permacrisis. Well, let me just start by saying we did not coin the phrase. The phrase was the word of the year for last year. And what it's trying to capture is this notion of going from one crisis to another, this feeling of cascading crises. And what brought us together is that we are all parents. We have kids that are teenagers or in their 20s. And we were worried the world was getting more and more difficult. And that if we didn't emerge from this, phenomenon of cascading crises, their inheritance would be a planet that's subject to a number of crises starting not just from the climate crisis, but also a growth crisis, an inequality crisis, a debt crisis. What we discovered is that there are common features to these crises, and three in particular. One is the inability to generate high inclusive growth that also respects our planet. Two, repeated policy mistakes. And three, inadequate global policy coordination. And what it tries to do is explain how we can get over these three persistent problems. Great. Well, that's a great overview, Mehmet. Thanks for that. I guess I have a number of questions. One of them is, you seem to suggest that we are now living, not just that we have lived through a period of multiple crises, but that that may continue. This is a, some sort of defined state. Why are we in a state of repeated crises. Let me take a shot at that. I was talking to one of the senior ministers in Dubai who's responsible for their enormous progress in the last 10 years. And of course, they're hosting the COP28 meeting starting just about now, actually. And he said, referring to crises, he said, I'm getting used to this. There's one every three months now. So our, our feeling is that in a world that is changing structurally at a fairly rapid rate, when accidents happen, at a relatively high frequency, when geopolitical tensions and, and climate and other things are delivering repeated shocks, 
that are only imperfectly anticipated, that we're looking forward. We're very likely to live in a world in which we're sort of continually adapting and slightly off balance. And I think this applies whether you're a policymaker or, you know, a family and a householder or, or trying to run a, a business, especially a global business. So th that, that was the origin. But underneath this, if I could add one thing, you know, my sense, and I think we shared it, is that there's fundamental sort of secular trends that, you know, aggregated together amount to regime change that require kind of different mindsets about growth, about economic management, about how to think about the way the global economy is structured and how to participate in it in a productive and profitable way. So let's move on to the, the objective. I mean, what you're trying to do in relation to this new state of affairs that you describe so well in your book. You lay out the objective as achieving inclusive, sustainable, and high growth. And it may be one to ask, is the enemy here depressed growth, or, or is it elevated uncertainty, or is it both? Because you didn't explicitly mention the reduction of uncertainty in this sort of threefold objective that you, you, you lay down in the book. I think the fundamental objective is to build enough momentum so that your resilience is not tested at every point, and that social, economic, political, and geopolitical factors align in a better way. A lot of people listening to this podcast are leaders of companies, and they would tell you that when growth is missing, management becomes really hard. You can't shrink yourself to success over and over again. When your human resilience and your financial resilience are continuously tested, then the likelihood of accidents increase. So we see growth that is high, inclusive, and sustainable as a necessary condition for other things to go well. It's not sufficient, but it's certainly a necessary condition. My interpretation is that you're actually talking about a number of quite different strands there and, and their interrelation in this. There seems to be something about escaping from things that drag down growth. There seems to be something about reducing this permanent state of uncertainty where we're constantly guessing and vulnerable to accidents. And there seems to be almost some sort of moral or human message about, you know, what are we trying to do anyway, the sort of inclusivity and sustainability part of it? Would that be a, a fair read of, of the sort of sentiment behind this objective function? I think that's fair, Martin. There is, I think, a presumption that a broad spectrum of humanity shares certain very basic values having to do with opportunity for everybody who's alive on the globe. And we probably share a concern that, you know, the growth paths we're on are leading to some kind of, you know, sudden stop or disaster, maybe in the lifetime of our children and grandchildren. So yes, it's not a value-free operation. The other thing I would say is we explained the book as sort of the need for newer, dramatically adjusted growth models, more effective economic management based on a realistic assessment of a changing world that we're living in, and at least arresting a kind of rush <laughs> to a kind of fragmented world with relatively little global cooperation. But the truth is, we think these things are all connected. You know, I can't imagine full potential growth on an inclusive basis, you know, in a kind of fragmented and tense global environment. You know, I get asked frequently by people in advanced countries, well, why do we want growth? You know, haven't we consumed enough? And I say, well, first of all, most of the people in the world still live in countries whose aspirations are to have higher incomes and so on. And the second thing is, you know, if you're trying to solve 
sustainability problems in a world with high sovereign debt, rising interest rates, higher costs of capital, and so on, it's kind of hard to pull that off, you know, if you don't have growth. And even if you're focused on inequality, you know, fixing inequality problems in a zero growth environment is a zero sum game. And that's really hard to pull off politically and socially. So for a lot of different reasons, we think we don't have a full solution, but making progress in all three of these dimensions makes the other one easier. Well, let's, let's move on to the interesting part, the, the solutions indeed. You see, you have these three elements, the new growth model, new economic management model, and a, a new way of managing global order. Let's start with the, uh, the new growth model. I mean, broadly, you seem to be saying we need to think about growth and value differently. What's the essence of how we need to think differently about those important variables? Well, I think this will be familiar to your, your senior leaders and CEOs. Many of them are engaged in searching for ways to align their business models with broader social and economic objectives. Um, sometimes it's referred as ESG, but it has other names. So we're all engaged in this in, in one way or another. The way I thought about it when we started to write the book is the kind of short-run headwinds coming from the supply side and those things that we talk about in the book are running in parallel with three enormous scientific and technological transformations that are underway. Now, I'm not going to go into great length because everybody kind of knows what they are. The digital one is everywhere and, you know, in full view with a sequence of stunning breakthroughs in AI. And I don't think we're done. The second one is a revolution in biomedical life sciences that promises it may not show up in productivity and, and GDP growth, but it'll sure show up in, you know, improvement in people's lives all over the world. And the third one is this massive energy transition, which has a significant technological component to it. So all of these things, I think, need to be factored in to the way we think about the opportunity set for the future, regardless of whether we're in business or in a policymaking position. So let's tease apart some of those strands on, on growth. And I think this is of direct relevance to our, to our business audience. So these, these technologies that could potentially drive new growth, what will it take to unlock that full potential? And, and how could we inadvertently fail to do so? I think we can both take a shot at this. We're in a period, let's take, rather than speak in general terms, you know, we just had Gen AI land on us as of the end of last year, although it was in development for about five years before that, you know, after that famous paper that was written in, in Google about the transformer models. So we're in a period of intense experimentation and exploration. And we honestly, you know, don't know what's going to come out of this. But my strategy, I think Mohammed's as well, was to go talk to the people who are building these technologies and find out what they think they're doing. And, you know, and when you walk away from that, you think, boy, you know, these large language models and, and, and the like are transformative, right? They switch domain in a human-like way that no previous technology did. That's why they look like they're a step in the direction of this controversial term, artificial general intelligence. And two, they're accessible. You know, you don't need a whole lot of technical training to use them, unlike many of the predecessors, even in the AI, in the AI space. So our belief is that properly deployed and diffused across the economy, this has the potential to produce an absolutely enormous productivity surge. And I think this is going to be led mainly by innovative companies including the established ones, finding ways to use this and build their competitive positions. Yeah, this is, this is probably a very important one for business. And if we can imagine two plausible scenarios, you know, one of them is that you know, these technologies become monopolized or they're mainly used to substitute humans or 
we have overreach in regulation. Or, you know, there are a number of sort of scenarios that could plausibly sort of not tap into this growth potential. And, and then we have a more sort of favorable scenario. What would be the discriminating factors, the things that leaders and, and policymakers would need to think about to fully tap into these three potential areas of growth? Well, I think you should hear from both of us on this because we both thought about it. But I just wrote a paper with James Mendeika at Google, you know, talking about this. So there's a number of things. First of all, the natural human tendency when you start talking about AI is to think automation. And that means job loss. And people are terrified. So for business leaders who think there's great potential in this, there's a component of this that has to do with really effective communication you know, and listening and feedback if you want to implement effectively. Otherwise, you'll, you'll run into massive resistance. And we can already see it happening. I mean, a hospital administrator stands up and starts talking about Gen AI, and people think they're coming for my job. And, uh, and that's not necessarily the way to do it. So there is an automation bias, and it needs to be avoided. These technologies best used are technologies that give people and systems powerful digital assistance, sometimes superhuman capability. But it's a, a machine-human collaboration story. I think that's a start. Second, I'll be brief. There's a role for government in this, and the policy agenda right now is very heavily weighted toward mitigating downside risks and misuse. Very heavily weighted. And that's okay. I don't mean to dismiss that. We didn't want to dismiss the importance of those issues, although I, I personally don't think extinction risk is an immediate problem right now. But there's an upside. You know, we need this technology to diffuse, you know, across the economy. And most of your CEOs are probably in charge of big enough companies to invest heavily in finding out how to use this productively. But there's a lot of other businesses that don't have those resources. And we need the public sector to help diffuse this technology. Right. So, so Mohammed, perhaps I could ask you a, a different aspect of the same question. I guess when we talk about prospering through technology, we're, we're talking about, in essence, not just gains, but widespread gains. And it's, it's quite conspicuous that AI leadership, for example, resides in China and the, and the US. So I'm wondering what we do about the inclusiveness or the degree to which the, the gains are widespread, because otherwise that could add to the, the third thing you talk about in your book, which is this sort of national tensions and, and global fragmentation. Any thoughts on that? So there's a reason why they are concentrated in China and the US, and that has to do with comparative advantage, talent, and big databases. So inherently, these technologies will prosper more in those two economies with the risk that you in fact get two systems. But the best way to think about this, Martin, is in terms of distribution of potential outcomes. And that's something that's going to be very familiar to people listening to us. When they consider new strategies, they typically look at a distribution of potential outcome that does two things. It moves to the right, which means that the most expected outcome is a better one, but it also tends to fatten the tails, both positive and negative. And that's exactly what these technologies do. They move the medium outcome to a better place while simultaneously imposing new risks and new opportunities. So the business solution to that is not just to focus on the left tail and get paralyzed. Most people will say the business solution to that is make sure you position for the baseline that's getting better, minimize the left tail, and try to exploit the right tail. 
And that is how regulation has to think about these issues. That's where the question between labor substituting and labor augmenting has to be thought of. And this is very familiar to people who come across innovations, come across new strategies. Of course, your distribution of outcomes will change. Of course, the tails will change. But then you have to manage that process. And you know, the minute you get focused on one or the other tail, that's the big mistake. Right. Uh, that's, I guess, the point that you're making earlier, Mike, with the sort of the focus of regulation on, on the downside and not the opportunity. Okay. Well, I, I'd love to keep going on this one, but we'd like to get through, I think, all of the major arguments in your book. So let's move on to your second block of solutions, which is new models for economic management. I think probably for a non-economist audience, we, we should probably first have you explain what you mean by economic management. How do we currently do it? And, and what's wrong with that in the, in the context of this sort of permacrisis state? The easiest way to think about this is why in the last 15 years have policymakers made so many mistakes? Why did we miss what was happening in finance and the risk that finance could tip the global economy into recession? Why did we emerge from the global financial crisis not understanding that we were facing a structural problem, treated it instead as a cyclical problem and got stuck in a low growth, unequal equilibrium? Why is it? that inflation was mischaracterized as transitory, why is it that we had more banking crisis in the US in 2023? If you look at this, and there's been lots of documentation, it is mainly the result of policy mistakes that are characterized by two things. One, narrow mindsets, an inability to escape the past, an inability to understand that paradigms change. And the second thing is the lack of adopting best practices that are available, that have proven to be very resilient and effective, and yet they're not adopted widely. So our argument is a very simple one, is look at the tendency that we have of making policy mistakes, ask the question, why do we make such mistakes, and address them. And the good news, and this is a fundamentally hopeful book, whether you look at the possibility for higher, more inclusive and sustainable growth, whether you look at better policy management or the third element, better policy coordination across countries, this is a fundamentally hopeful book. We can do this. It simply requires a lot more humbleness and to learn from your mistake rather than repeat them. And unfortunately, we have a tendency of just repeating them. Right. Well, let's take an example that I think everyone will be familiar with, the economic management associated with the COVID crisis. I mean, I guess if, if I put a straw man on the table, one could argue that in terms of the outcomes, we didn't manage that too badly. There was, there was a very short, shallow recession. There was an incredibly rapid recovery. We showed sufficient flexibility of policy response in healthcare to, to enable the, the vaccine to, to be developed in a, in a timescale that people thought was impossible from a regulatory perspective. We somehow made an incredibly surprising to me smooth transition to flexible remote digital working. So what did we miss? What could we do better, for example, in anticipating or managing similar crises in the future? So we certainly did two things that we should bottle up and make sure that we don't lose the insights. One is in the vaccine development, incredibly effective public-private partnerships. And that's because those partnerships were based on risk tranching. The public sector didn't try to do it all itself. It understood that 
the capabilities were in the private sector, but it also understood that unless you take catastrophic risk off the table, then the private sector is not going to be able to develop that. So, so that, that was a major insight. In fact, we cite it in the book because it's going to be very important for the transition on energy, for life sciences. We need these partnerships. The second thing is, you're absolutely right, the adaptability of humans and the ability to work at home. But we made so many mistakes, Martin. We made a fundamental mistake of distribution. COVID didn't need to come back in different variants had we got the distribution of vaccines right around the world. Remember, the second and third variants came from India and South Africa. There wasn't a proper distribution of vaccines. The recovery has been very painful, and we're living with the legacy because there was this notion that after you shut down the economy, it's like a light switch. You just turn it back on, and the lights are going to come back on. Well, that's not how economies work. If you shut down an economy suddenly, what's called a sudden stop in economics, when you try to restart it, things are in the wrong place. We also thought there was no cost to continuing with the notion that the supply problems are just temporary. And the result of that, inflation, higher interest rates, housing issues. So we did things right, but we did a lot of things wrong that we should have done better on. Okay. That's great. Again, much we could discuss there in terms of how to fully exploit the learnings from COVID and so on. But in the interest of time, let's move on to your final block of solutions, a better global order. I I guess here the key idea is that you're seeing uh, after a period of globalization where we have this incredible bonus of the ability to manufacture things in in low-cost locations and, and have the spread of production technologies across the world and very lean supply chains, That all seems to be unraveling at some level as we try to decouple, make supply chains resilient by diversifying sources and bring in duplication and so on, all driven by the fear that something that somebody else does will interfere with the prosperity at home and leading to this sort of fragmentation of national interests. I mean, it sounds like a very difficult thing to mandate a solution to. Have I characterized the problem right? And what's the essence of the solution? Well, it's complicated. So I think we should both take a shot at this. I mean, the way I see it, and I think, you know, it would be all three of us, you know, we're living in a different world. We lived in a world for three or four decades, actually since World War II, in which the global economy was constructed on technological foundations, but the economic underpinnings were labor arbitrage, efficiency, and comparative advantage. And that was it, right? And it was driven, the architects of that, were many of your clients, the multinational businesses. That was a relatively benign world in terms of frequency of shocks. So very tightly wound supply chains didn't really cause that many problems. This is a completely different world. I mean, we have shocks from pandemics. We have shocks from wars. We have geopolitical tensions. We have climate shocks coming at us at a great rate. And what we see, this isn't speculation or prescription, is that businesses are busy diversifying their supply chains with the policymakers right behind them, pushing, right? And what's underlying this is what Mohammed said before. It's resilience, national security, economic security, energy and food security, and so on. And this is a world that on the supply side, we may be going in the right direction, but we can go too far in that direction. And it's a world that's a whole lot more expensive <laughs> than a world that's constructed on the basis of trying to minimize costs. We don't suggest that there's any chance of going back to where we were, right? That's just not realistic. 
You can't wish away the geopolitical tensions between China and the United States and others. You can't wish away a future of sort of shocks of a variety of kinds. And so we're going to live in that world. And so the challenge that we tried to address ourselves to, well, it's a different world. What's the best we can make of this, <laughs> right? Do we really have to just kind of go full on a full-throated run into a kind of fragmentation? Or can we build a, a ring fence around national security issues and so on? That's the goal. Let me ask you about the solution there, because part of your solution, as I read it, is to revamp our current multilateral institutions. And I mean, that sounds like a, a desirable thing to do, but aren't the circumstances precisely wrong and unfavorable to, to do that? How do we get around the, the deep mistrust and economic conflict? I, I guess it's partly Thucydides' trap. It's, it's the inevitability that in the rivalry for power, you know, national interests, politics will, will trump economics in other matters. How do you how do you get around that so that you can have a chance of doing some of the things that you talk about in terms of reforming multilateral institutions? So the phrase that the politicians use, which we do not use, is de-risk without decouple. We think of it slightly differently. As Mike said, we are not going back to the world of hyper-globalization, this notion of ever closer economic and financial integration. We want to avoid the world of disorderly fragmentation. So we believe that in between these two is what we call managed globalization light. And there's two elements of it. It's a lighter form of globalization because companies will seek more resilient supply chains, because countries will be pushing more national security consideration. But it also has to be managed because there are common problems that require common action. And that's where the multilateral institutions come in. But you're absolutely right. As they currently stand, these institutions are not trusted enough. Their credibility has been shaken. How do you explain to somebody that in this day and age, when we go around talking about merit-based appointments, the US still gets the presidency of the World Bank and Europe still gets the head of the IMF? How do you explain voting powers and representation that is a reflection of the world of yesterday, not the world of today. Unless you reform these things, these institutions will not become more effective. And we need them. We critically need them. I think of an orchestra. You'd like everybody at some point to be playing off the same sheet of music and to be coordinated. That's what we need to confront climate change. If we don't have a conductor, your chance of getting it right is very, very low. Right. I guess another way of putting my question is, what is the change thesis? Because we could agree on the problem. We could agree on the desirable end state. We could have a list of 100 things that we ideally would want to do, but it may be hard to do those 100 things. One of my colleagues uses the word unlock a lot, meaning if we could do one thing that would lock many of those 100 things that we need to do, what would be the one thing? What would be some of the high leverage moves that you see as being feasible to increase cooperation through our multilateral institutions? I have one that, that I think would help, but it's not directly related. I think both China and the United States have realized that there are highly negative consequences of going on the current trajectory. And the senior policy people are trying very hard, A, to acknowledge that we have, you know, tensions that require us to 
have home capabilities, deal with reliable trading partners, etc., but to limit the damage that that does in pursuit of essentially national security and defense to things that are really essential and not contaminate the whole system. And I think if the United States and China can kind of over time overcome this trust barrier that we have and at least move in that direction, it will be easier to make progress in restoring the multilateral institutions. Two comments on that. Mohammed's talked a lot about that because he used to work for one of them. You know, in the modern world, it just doesn't make any sense that Belgium can outvote China. I mean, you know, this is nonsense. So that kind of reform may be difficult because Europe and the United States may not let go, but it's crucial. Then to tackle climate change, because they have a huge role in assuming some of the risk associated with the investments, massive investments that are required, we need to kind of capitalize them at a high level. Now, you know what, I bet my kids' savings that we'll get there next year, probably not. But for us, inching our way in that direction with small steps would yield very large benefits in the future. So your book doesn't deal directly with what companies should do, but I think there are implications, indirect implications, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role and implications for companies. And I I guess it's in two parts. I mean, companies certainly need to cope with the new challenges of the environment permacrisis that you, you lay out. I'm also wondering, are they part of the solution? For example, you know, we've thought a little about the idea of corporate diplomacy, which is, you know, trade is a form of diplomacy broadly defined. Is there a role for business? in reducing uh, global tensions and perhaps other ideas you may have. What does all of this mean for business, essentially? You know, we start with the hypothesis that it's very difficult to be a good house in a bad neighborhood. So companies have to fundamentally understand the environment in which they're operating, the global neighborhood. And that is the first takeaway for companies. The second takeaway is the ability to simultaneously play defense and offense. What you cited is importantly on on the offense side. Companies have a very important role to play in fulfilling economic and social objectives. And I think there's there's a broader understanding that there's some things that companies can and should be doing better, but importantly, there's some things where public private partnerships are needed. And then what about the defense? The main message of our book is in a world like this, you better ask yourself, every single day, whether your company has three characteristics. One is resilience, because the world is unusually uncertain. The chances of stumbling are high. And if you have financial and human resilience, you will get back up quickly. You can afford to make mistakes. Not that you want to make mistakes, but the world may impose mistakes. The second thing we stress is optionality or open-mindedness. Understand that the world is changing. We're living in a paradigm where the supply side is inflexible, where the global economy is operating differently, and you've got to have an open mindset in terms of how you think of strategies. And finally, agility. There's going to be massive opportunities, and you need this combination of resilience, optionality, and agility in order to play both defense and offense simultaneously. Anything to uh, add to that, Michael? What are some of the things that, I mean, of course, businesses are thinking about a lot of these questions, but as you think about what you hear about what's going on in boardrooms and management teams, is there something you'd like to emphasize in terms of what companies should be thinking about right now? Well, this is really the offense and defense. 
I would be focused on productivity. Everybody's complaining about labor shortages, at least in a lot of major, you know, developed markets. I'd be thinking about productivity. That's kind of the defensive part. And the, but you have technologies to help you with that. And on the offensive part, you know, I would be, you know, scanning the horizon for opportunities. So this is not an easy balance to strike, right? You know, so you want on the one time you're kind of trimming the organization down to make sure it's as competitive as possible in the current environment, but investing in the future. And, you know, those two things don't always sit comfortably together. The other thing I've admired about the best businesses in the world is they can operate in incredibly complex environments. I mean, not impossibly complex. I mean, there's places in the global economy where the regulatory requirements are literally contradictory. <laughs> now, I don't envy the CEOs sort of trying to operate in that environment. But the one thing that I think slows business down, and business is in the end, the engine that we rely on to move forward for innovation, for growth, for everything that ultimately filters through and benefits everybody, is the one thing is unnecessary uncertainty. So I've spent a lot of time in China. They've got a lot of challenges, right? Real estate, municipal governments that are broke, etc. But their main problem is that both the domestic and foreign businesses are uncertain about their place in the sun. They have created an uncertainty. If they clarify that uncertainty, they'll restore confidence. And most businesses, whether they're Chinese or multinational or European or American, or Latin American for that matter, you know, are going to find a way to operate in those environments because that's what businesses are good at. Well, I, I wish we could go on. This is such an important topic, but we're probably out of time. So I want to thank you both very much for joining me today and discussing these important ideas with us. I've been discussing Permacrisis, a plan to fix a fractured world with Mohamed El Erian and Mike Spence, also co-authored with Gordon Brown, which came out in October 2023 from Simon & Schuster. I think a really important and timely book. In my experience of, of doing strategy for 30 years, there are times when business mainly focuses on its internal operations and optimizations, and there are times when they have to think about the broader system in which they're embedded, the social and political variables. And it seems to me that we are very much in that time. And therefore, I think there are lots of hints about the nature of the problem, the nature of the solutions in the book, and I strongly recommend it, therefore, to, to all business leaders. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback.